Hello, my name is Elena. Hi, my name is Valerie. My name is Brooke. My name is Chris. Welcome to Love Chapel Hill. And welcome to Love Chapel Hill. And welcome to Love Chapel Hill, where our name is our mission. Where our name is our mission. To love Chapel Hill with the heart of Jesus. To love Chapel Hill with the heart of Jesus. We're glad you're with us today. Hey, Love Chapel Hill. Joel here, and I want to take you with me right here to the Forest Theater. This is going to be the location of our very first in-person gathering in over a year. Uh, it's going to be on May 23rd. And to make this happen, uh, we are going to need your help. So whether it's uh, making sure that we do this virtually, so for those of you that are not ready to gather yet or are unable to, that you could still join in and worship with us, or actually you know making sure everything is functioning and working well and people are able to gather together in a simple simple and safe way we're going to need some help doing so whether it's joining one of our planning teams our media team worship arts connections quest kids all of the above to maybe even just set up on sundays to helping with the hospitality team whatever it is if you are interested in helping us make this happen and serving, I want to invite you to uh, email me at joel at and let us know if you're interested in helping out. But we're excited about this and whether you're able to meet in person or if you're still gonna uh, join in worship with us online, we still want you to be with us on May 23rd and we hope to see you there. Hey Love Chapel Hill, it's Brooke with Connections. I just wanted to let you know that we are still hosting the watch party every Sunday at 10 a.m. So if you want to come and join us, please check out our website for more information to join us. We'll be hosting the watch party until May 23rd, which is the day that we will start to regather in person. But don't worry, if you can't yet come to regathering with us in person, we will still offer an online version of the service. So please make sure to be on the lookout for that information. We will offer that version for those of you who can't come in person or who don't feel comfortable yet joining us. So we hope to see you all on Sundays at 10 a.m. Hi, I'm Maddie and I get to tell you about Quest Kids. Quest Kids is our children's ministry and throughout this time of worshiping at home, we've been having weekly Zoom meetings Sundays at 10 a.m. And we are in search of and in need of volunteers. I know another Zoom meeting might feel like a hard sell right now, but let me tell you, this is not like any other Zoom meeting you're going to. You get to hang out with about 15 engaged, insightful, and hilarious kids, and you get to spend time doing fun things like scavenger hunts and games, and of course, reading from and learning from God's Word. It's been such a powerful and joyful time of connection for all of us, and I really encourage you to reach out if you're interested. It doesn't matter if you're someone who has volunteered in person in the past who wants to reconnect or you're looking to do this for the first time. We would love to hear from you. There's two ways that you can reach out to connect. One is going to our church's main webpage, lovechapelhill.com, and scrolling a bit down on that first screen, you'll see a spot to reach out or to apply to be a volunteer. Or you can look at the connect card link at the bottom of this video and fill that out and just express your interest in the children's ministry or quest kids there. We are really excited to hear from you and looking forward to working with you. How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb in desperation. I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished, the end is written. Jesus Christ, my living Lord. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? 
desperate for your presence, longing to be with you. Lead me to a new place, more of you. We begin this morning uh, acknowledging the verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial, uh, the verdict of guilty, found guilty on all three counts in his murder of George Floyd. Um, we recognize that this is a small step, but it is a step in the right direction. We acknowledge that the road behind is long, uh, bridges and balconies, marches and mountaintops. We acknowledge that the road ahead is long. And we say as a church family together that we will continue to be a part of embodying not only righteousness, but justice in our communities. And we will be a part of continuing to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly, acknowledging the road behind and the road ahead and walking together. Today, we're continuing in our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we are looking at another parable of Jesus today. It's found in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. And uh, this is often referred to as the parable of the workers in the vineyard. It's a parable that's unique to the Gospel of Matthew. We don't find it in any of the other Gospels. Um, and it's, it's a parable that, even though so many of the parables of Jesus are so well-loved, uh, this is a parable that is often uh, seen as controversial, um, and it's not often listed among people's favorite parables. Uh, the, the, the edge of this parable hits so close to home and the challenge of this parable hits us so deeply um, that it is a parable that we like to avoid. Uh, even though um, it actually contains one of the most famous statements uh, that Jesus uh, is, is recorded as saying, uh, and this statement that is well-loved and is so often repeated, this statement that Jesus makes, uh, that the last will be first and the first will be Last. And the whole parable tells a story uh, that shows us what that principle means and uh, what that, um, that picture of the gospel that we get there in Jesus' statement, what it actually 
looks like. So we're going to look at that parable together. Uh, Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire people to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the person who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. So you can see why this parable of the great reversal uh, is is surrounded by so much controversy, why it's so uncomfortable for people. In many ways, uh, it critiques us and our own cultural sensibilities. Uh, and we find ourselves relating to different people at different places through this parable. And we're not comfortable with the ways that we find ourselves relating to the different characters. As we move into this and, and unpack this together, uh, a couple of things that we want to talk about. We want to talk about the historic, con the historical context that's found here, uh, and then the gospel context, where this uh, lands in the larger story that's being told in the gospel of Matthew. As we've said over and over again, context is so important when we're studying scripture because scripture is a living landscape and you can't just um, uproot a particular verse or passage up out of that landscape without losing some of the meaning that is there in that passage and that verse. It's, it's important, critical for us uh, to study uh, key passages, to memorize and internalize them Absolutely. Uh, but to understand the true and full meaning of them, we've got to see that broader picture and that broader context. Um, seeing the context doesn't change the meaning of a passage. It reveals the meaning of a passage. It highlights and presents the meaning of a passage. What gets changed is not the meaning that's there. What gets changed is our understanding and our grasping of the meaning. So that's what we want to do here. Uh, in the, in the day in which Jesus is telling this story, uh, and in the cultural context that Jesus is telling this story, once again, like with so many of the parables of Jesus, uh, as he begins a story, all of the elements are so familiar to the people who are hearing it, uh, that they're immediately taken into the story. Um, so many of the barriers start to come down for them and they open themselves up to what Jesus has to say because they relate so much to the story that he's telling. They've seen this story play out. And so they think they know exactly where it's going to go. And then Jesus, in his creative way of telling the story, 
there's always this shocking twist at the end that surprises us and reveals the nature of the kingdom. That's how he begins it, is the kingdom of heaven is like. And then we see uh, at the end, what is the kingdom of heaven like? It's like a place where the last will be first and the first will be last. This shocking conclusion. For the people who are hearing this the first time, uh, the characters, the setting, uh, all of this is so familiar. They know about the hired workers um, and, and they would have known many people that this is how they made their living. Um, for, for the hired workers, uh, often referred to as day laborers, um, this was uh, a way for people to survive. Uh, it was a way for them uh, to gain a livelihood within the larger system, uh, within the economy that had been set up in that time, in that place. Uh, and they're finding ways to navigate this system. For them, um, the hired workers and, and that kind of uh, a daily job like that, it wasn't um, a, a completely consistent job opportunity for them. It definitely wasn't a career path that most people uh, wanted to aspire to. Uh, oftentimes, a person who found themselves in this kind of situation uh, were doing they were doing this as a means of survival, as a as a means of making the ends meet. They had this desire for work. And they had this dedication to finding work uh, so that they could provide for themselves or for their family. Uh, but at the same time, even though there's this desire and this dedication in seeking work like that, um, they were still dependent on another person. They're dependent on an employer and the generosity of an employer, uh, the opportunity that an employer extends to them, uh, the integrity and the character of an employer that they're actually going to do what they promised that they would do and that they would pay what they promised they would pay. Um, so this is a situation where a hired worker needed someone to need them. They needed someone else to need them. They needed that opportunity uh, and for the project to be out there that they could step into in order to sustain their lives, in order to survive, and in order to provide a livelihood. And in that kind of scenario, there's always uh, this looming sense of uncertainty of what doors are going to close, uh, what opportunities are going to collapse based on what is happening in the larger economy around them. Uh, the marketplace that Jesus mentions, again, would have been very common for the people. There's this central kind of commerce area where people gather together to sell the things that they've made or the things that they have farmed or grown. Um, and in that same kind of bustling marketplace, uh, people would go in search of work and employers would go in search of workers. And so uh, this would be this common gathering spot where you would show up, you would bring your tools, you would bring your skills and your experience, uh, and you would hope for an opportunity uh, to get work for that day. And so we see that happening. The workers are there and the owner of this vineyard goes and is looking for workers to come and to work in his vineyard. Uh, the denarius that gets mentioned, uh, this is uh, a, a form of money. This is a coin uh, that would be basically the standard pay for one day's worth of work, one day's wages. Uh, we can debate whether or not that would have been a, a fair wage, uh, but it was the standard and agreed upon wage um, pretty much across the board there. It's what you would need to survive. Uh, nobody is getting rich off of that every day. Uh, but you were able to get by in that culture off of a denarius. So it's this kind of standard um, and cultural contract that was understood between people that a day's wages is about worth a denarius. And then you've got uh, the people who are the last in the market. This also would have been something that would have been common. Um, people who are going and in search of work um, and not finding it. People had people in their lives. They knew people who day after day, they would go to the marketplace. 
They were dedicated in searching for these opportunities. And day after day, those opportunities, they, they found those opportunities dried up. They found the doors closed, no doors opening for them, no matter how hard they tried in their search for work. Um, this sense of the vineyard owner going out time after time after time here, uh, five different times going out at different hours through the, through the day. Uh, this would have happened during, during a time of like maybe like a harvest time uh, when there's an urgency of a lot of work to get done and a small uh, window of time in which to accomplish that work. And so throughout the day, as he understands, there's still so much more for us to do. I've got to go get more help. And so you see that happening. And when he goes at the end of the day and finds these people who are still standing in the marketplace, uh, and he asks, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Uh, when, when Jesus places that question in the mouth of that vineyard owner, without a doubt, people who were hearing Jesus tell that story or they're reading it uh, as Matthew has recorded this story. And us today, people who are hearing this or reading this now today, that's the same question that many people have about these people who were hired last. Why are they still there? Why haven't they found a job? Uh, why haven't they worked hard in order to work hard? Why haven't they gone searching after work? Where is their work ethic? How do they expect to make it in this world if they're not willing to work for it? And so the vineyard owner asks that question, why are you still here? Why have you been here all day? Why aren't you working? And so when Jesus asks that question and puts that question in the mouth of the vineyard owner, there's a connection. And many people who are hearing this now, we would think of that question. Um, but Jesus doesn't just place our question in the story. He also honors these workers who were chosen last. And he gives them a chance to answer that question. That's a question that would have been circulating in the culture. And Jesus, in his compassion and in his grace and in his conviction towards us who would still ask that question, gives these workers a chance to answer. And their answer is, because no one has hired us. Because no one has hired us. And it's very clear that this is not a sense of laziness on the part of these workers. Uh, it's not a sense that they're not dedicated in looking for these opportunities, it's that the opportunities have dried up and day after day, they still keep showing up. Day after day, they are still searching and no one is giving them a shot. They're pleading for an opportunity, but over and over again, they are being overlooked. They are being rejected. The people who got hired first, they probably got hired first every day. They were probably the kind of workers that you take a look at and you say, now that's the kind of person I want working in my vineyard. That's the kind of person who could really produce something for me. And probably at a glance, people get sized up and assumptions get made about people. And the first get picked first and the second get picked second until the last ones standing were probably the last ones picked every single day. But before we rush to judge them for that, we have to remember how many times they probably got passed over and yet they're still there. They're not quitting. They're still there hanging on to every last hope of an opportunity that they might get. They refuse to leave the marketplace until the doors are completely closed, until the last door closes. They're still there and they refuse to quit. So that's a critique to us and any kind of judgment that we might make about the, the status of another person's life. We don't know. We don't know another person's story. And as part of the beauty in how Jesus tells this story is he lets them tell their story as well and opens up our eyes to that. How many times did they get passed over? How many times did they plead for one shot how many times did they pray for something to break? And they were denied the basic dignity of an opportunity. 
They were denied the basic dignity, probably even of eye contact. They were sized up and passed over again and again and again. But this day was different. This day ended differently from them. And instead of even just receiving what they had earned for working that one hour, instead they receive the overflowing unmerited generosity of the person who owns the vineyard. And in this story, the forgotten become the first thought and the last get moved to the front of the line. This was a controversial story in that day and time, and it is for us too. And that shocking twist is designed to critique us, to reveal and expose us, and to reveal and expose the truth of the gospel and the reality of the kingdom that Jesus the King is establishing. So that's the historic context. Let's talk for a moment about the gospel context as well. Where does this fall in the overall story? Uh, because that tells us so much. Right here at the end of the, of the parable, uh, Jesus gives us one line. Again, that very famous line, the last will be first and the first will be last as the definition of what this parable means. He doesn't always do that. He doesn't always tell us the meanings of his parables. He leaves that for us to dig into and, uh, and to explore, right? And to go through that journey of exploration and understanding ourselves. But in this moment, he gives us the meaning. The last will be first and the first will be last. And so we know that that's the meaning of the parable. But as we pull out a little bit and we get a broader view and we look at the larger gospel context, we begin to see that Jesus doesn't only end the parable with that statement, he actually begins the parable with that statement. So this parable, according to the way that our uh, Bibles get uh, outlined, uh, it's put at the beginning of chapter 20. And when we're reading, we obviously uh, often will go to the beginning of a chapter and we think, okay, this new thought begins here. Uh, and we might even disconnect it from the chapter that comes before. But if we pull out just a little bit, we'll see the way chapter 19 ended. And chapter 19 ends. The last verse in chapter 19 is, Jesus says, and the first will be last and the last will be first. It's actually inverted from the way he says it at the end of the parable. But what we have here is this parable that Jesus is telling gets bracketed by that statement. And so he doesn't only say it once, he says it twice at the beginning and at the end. In biblical studies, this is referred to as an inclusio. And when you see this kind of bracket like this, uh, it's a clear statement. You cannot miss the meaning of this passage. This is the message that the author is trying to get across. And so we see that Jesus says it twice and shows us this is the point of the story that I'm telling you. Don't miss the point. This is the point of the story that I'm telling. We also see as we start to pull out even a little more uh, and see a little bit more of the gospel context, uh, just from chapter the end of chapter 19 and what comes next in chapter 20, uh, we see even more meaning poured into this parable. Um, we see that this parable sits between two questions that get asked that have to do with the reward that the disciples are going to receive. Okay, so this passage sits between not just that bracket of that key statement, uh, but sits between two questions that have to do with the kind of reward that the disciples are going to receive. The first question um, gets asked by Peter. It comes after the story of the rich young ruler in which Jesus makes this statement as the rich young ruler walks away unwilling to give up everything for the cause of Christ and to follow Jesus. Uh, as he walks away, Jesus makes this statement of how hard it is for a rich person to enter into the kingdom because we want so badly to hang on to what we already have. And we miss the treasure that is standing right in front of us in the person of Jesus. And Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. And the disciples say, well, then who possibly can be saved? And Jesus says, by humans, it's impossible. But with God, anything is possible. 
And then Peter steps up and asks this question. Peter so often speaks for us and asks the questions that we want to ask. Uh, but Peter asks this question and he says this, we have left everything for you. We're not like that rich young ruler. Uh, we're, we didn't grasp onto everything that we own. We left everything behind. Uh, we're not rich people. We don't have the burden of that on us. We left everything behind to follow you. And he follows with this question. What then will there be for us? What then will there be for us? We left everything. So now what is in it for us? What are we going to receive? What's our reward? And Jesus answers by saying, anyone who has left fields or homes or families, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, will receive a hundred times as much for following me. And then Jesus says this, the first will be last and the last will be first. So that's what happens before this parable. What happens after it? After it in chapter 20, uh, the mother of James and John, the, the brothers that uh, get nicknamed by Jesus, the sons of thunder, um, the mother of James and John comes to Jesus and uh, she asks for a reward for her sons. And she says, please, I'm asking for this request that when you come into your kingdom and in, into your glory, uh, that one of my sons will sit on your right and the other will sit on your left hand, enthroned with you in glory. Jesus says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? They say, yes, we can. And uh, Jesus says, in fact, you will. You will, but those places of honor are not for me to give. That's for the Father to give. And then he goes on and makes this statement. He says, whoever wants to be great in the kingdom of God must become a servant. Whoever wants to become great must become a servant. For even the Son of Man, referring to himself, uh, that messianic title referring to himself, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And so in these two stories that are situated on either side of this parable, we see how the disciples were concerned about what kind of reward they were going to receive for following Jesus. We have left everything to follow you. Now what is coming with it? What is in it for us? What is our reward? And so we can see by these two stories and by this parable right in the middle, we can see that the disciples themselves were the audience for this parable. Uh, they were the target audience that Jesus is speaking to when he tells this story. This is not one of those cutting parables uh, that just shows up the Pharisees and embarrasses the Pharisees for all of their hypocrisy and exposes them. We love those parables. Uh, it's not a parable that talks about the Roman Empire uh, being undercut or overthrown by the kingdom of God. We love those parables too. It's not about overthrowing the oppression of Rome. This parable is about the disciples. And by extension, as, as Matthew writes so often, the stories of the disciples by extension are directed to the future disciples of Jesus. And that would be us. This story is for us. And it's a direct critique and challenge to our own lives. And what is Jesus challenging the disciples with in this parable? What is it that he's getting at with this parable directed towards them? A few things. Number one, he's reminding them that the privilege is for purpose. The privilege is for purpose. The disciples should have seen in many ways, would have seen themselves as those first workers who get hired. Uh, and out of their own Jewish roots and that sense of belonging in the Jewish community, they would have seen the Jewish people overall as the first workers in this vineyard of the kingdom of God. In fact, the vineyard was an image all the way throughout the Old Testament that gets connected to God's people, the people of Israel. And he talks about cultivating this vineyard and, and it represents them. And so Jesus is reminding them that, yes, the first contract that gets made, then that covenant that gets made 
It's a covenant with the Jewish people. This covenant that goes back to Abraham, that runs through Moses and David. You are my chosen people. You are people that I have chosen to bless. And what's the purpose of that place of honor? It's, it's to be a blessing to the entire world. It's through this family of Abraham that the Messiah is going to come, that the child of promise is going to come and to bring redemption to the world so that the children of God will outnumber even the stars in the sky. Don't forget that that privilege that you've been given is to be used for a purpose. But he's not just challenging their their sense of place uh, within the Jewish people and within that covenant relationship with God that, that he makes with the Jewish people. It's also for them and their relationship with Jesus. They were the first disciples. They were the first to follow Jesus, the 12 disciples. Uh, and even the three people who get mentioned by name, the three disciples who get mentioned by name here, uh, Peter at, in chapter 19, James and John in chapter 20, uh, they are among the four first disciples who get called. The fourth would be Andrew, Peter's brother. Uh, so they are among the four first disciples who get called. And so Jesus is reminding them that, yes, I know you were first. I know that you were the first to drop everything and to follow me and to respond to this call to be my disciple. We get that back in Matthew chapter 4. Uh, but he's reminding them that that greatness, that place of greatness is going to be expressed through service. That's part of what it means to follow him is to be shaped into the same kind of life that he is living through us. And he also is challenging them to remember that in so many ways, they are uh, the obvious and the ultimate and the living example of what this statement means when Jesus says, the first will be last and the last will be first. He reminds them, not only were they the first disciples to follow him, but also in Matthew chapter four, they were the last. They were some of the last people chosen because no other rabbi wanted them. No other rabbi had picked them and they were at a stage in their lives where they were unchosen to be a disciple of any other rabbi. And Jesus comes to them when they had been forgotten, when they had been overlooked, when they had been passed over. And he says, I want you to follow me and to come and be my disciple. They were the last and those last became the first. But Jesus is reminding them that now you're the first, that before you were the last and now you are the first. Now you're the first and later you must be willing to be the last. Greatness in the kingdom of God gets expressed by serving other people. And this place that you have found yourself in with me, this relationship, you can never take pride in this relationship. You cannot take pride in your place with Jesus, but instead it opens you up and produces humility in you and drives you to become a servant to other people because of the way that he has served you. The last thing is this, uh, that the reward is the relationship. The reward is the relationship. Uh, both of these stories that sit on the other side of the parable, it's about what kind of reward the disciples are going to get. And Jesus tells this parable right in the middle of it. And there's this challenge here that in the story, um, Jesus shows us that the first workers who get chosen, the first workers who get hired and go into uh, the vineyard to work, they get offended and they get appalled by the way that the owner of the vineyard gives out the reward. They get offended and appalled by that. But let's look closely at what they actually say, what they, how they word their complaint. It's not just that they got paid equally. The words are, you have made them equal with us. You have made them equal with us. Their offense and their anger isn't just over being paid equally. It's being made equal. 
And as we get into actually the nuance around the original language, that's the sense here. It's not only the pay, it's being made equal. And there's an offense and there's an anger about that. Equality offended them. Equality offended them. Why in the world would someone be offended by equality? Because they were used to being first. They were used to that place of privilege of being first. So when the last were made equal to them, it offended them and it angered them. The reality is nothing was taken from them. And that's what the owner of the vineyard says. I'm paying you what I agreed to pay you. I'm not taking anything from you. Nothing was taken from them. All that was happening is that more was being given to those who had a history of being last. It's not that anything was taken. It felt like something was being taken because they were being made equal to people where they had a history of being first and the others had a history of being last. Because they were accustomed to more, equality felt like unfairness. Because they were accustomed to more, equality felt like unfairness. And that kind of attitude gets clearly critiqued in the way Jesus tells this story. Here is the beautiful twist in the story. And around this sense of reward that the disciples are so concerned about that sparks this story from Jesus. The people in the story, they thought that the reward was attached to their work. All right. They thought that the reward was directly attached to their work. But when we pull back and we look at the story, the reward was the same all the way across the board. Five different groups of people and the reward was the same. Uh, They worked for the same person. So the payment was the same. The person was the same. They all worked in the same vineyard. The payment was the same. The person was the same. The place was the same. The only difference was the work. They all worked for the same person, for the same place, and for the same pay. So the difference maker is not about the work. The the reward is not connected to the work. The reward was connected to the person who invited them and the place, the vineyard, where they were doing the work. And clearly in this story, The owner of the vineyard is meant to be Jesus and the vineyard is meant to be the kingdom that is being established. The reward is not about the work. The reward is in the relationship to the person, Jesus, and the place, the kingdom of God. We are being invited into that. And oftentimes we have to be checked in our motivation. Why are we doing this? Why are we a part of this? Uh, Why do we give ourselves to this? Is it for some reward that we've been promised or that we hope to receive? Or is it for him? Is the reward the relationship? And that's what Jesus is communicating to his disciples. You're talking about wanting to to have something to replace everything that you walked away from. Uh, You're wanting to be placed on a throne on either side of me and given this place of honor. It's not about the throne. It's not about what kind of, of wealth you can accumulate. It's about me. The invitation was to come follow me. The invitation was to walk in the way of the kingdom. That's your reward. It's a relationship with Jesus and it's a life within the kingdom. This parable shows us at the heart how radical grace dismantles the myth of meritocracy. Radical grace dismantles the myth of meritocracy and it drives into our hearts the reality that grace is an unearned relationship with the one who brings us into reconciliation. It's not anything that we could have ever earned on our own. That grace, as it's historically defined, is unmerited favor. Grace, the unmerited favor of God. Or as one of my friends has defined it, and I love this, grace 
is unfair love. Grace is unfair love. We did not deserve this. He does not love us because we deserve it, because we deserve it. He loves us because he is love. That is who he is. What someone said, religion is us offering God our resume and grace is God offering us his. In other words, religion is what we are doing for him. Grace is what he has done for us. Grace should humble us. Grace should break us and open up this deep gratitude for the unmerited generosity that has been poured out on us because of the mercy of Jesus. The big point is plain and simple. It's what it's always been. It's what it is today still. The last will be first and the first will be last. And this story that Jesus tells is so powerful in the way that he illustrates this Jesus reality and this kingdom truth and drives it into our hearts in such a powerful and compelling way. This is a beautiful story, but we need more. We need more stories of this reality. It is so countercultural to the world that we live in and the world is longing for more stories like this. The author Toni Morrison said that if there's a book you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you have to write it. You have to write it. And that's the challenge for us this week is that I guess we're going to have to write some of these kinds of stories together that we're going to have to come together and bring together a collected anthology of living parables like this one that Jesus told us. How can we do that? How can we in our individual lives, how can each of us or maybe within a small group or within our bands or within a group of friends that we are bound to together in discipleship relationship, how can we bring about and create a living parable that illustrates this? How can we write another story like this? That's the challenge for this week is to find some kind of way to write a new story like this. And Jesus is inviting you to join him in that. Identify a person in your life, whether uh, whatever sphere of life you are in, identify a person who is often seen as being in last place and then ask Jesus to show you how you can make that person first, even one time, even once. And what a powerful story that could be in the life of that person, but also that reality stepping into the world again, another story like the one that we read today. Identify a person who's considered to be among the last and ask how can you help to make them first. Write that story. This is simple. I get that. Uh, it might feel cheesy. <laughs> it might feel too small and insignificant. And I completely understand that an action like that, one action, a single action like that is not going to change the world. I get that. All right. I'm optimistic, but I'm not that optimistic. I get it. But what I do know is this, that Jesus clearly loved to tell stories like this and clearly loved to create stories like this. So maybe he'll also want to join you in writing a new one. And who knows, he might even just show up in the middle of it and take on the lead role.
never be the same. We'll never be the same. We go from glory to glory to glory. We're forever changed. We're forever changed. You call me your friend. morning love chapel hill family elena here what an awesome word we've heard this week uh, when jesus uh was asked by the disciples what is our reward we've done so much we've sacrificed so much to follow you and his answer was simply a parable about the generosity of god and how god blesses us not according to this world's ways of a blessing but according to his grace and his generosity and who he is, not according to our works. A lot of times we feel like we have to be, our blessings will come according to our works as, as we do on jobs where we're rewarded based on what we do in our performance. But God has a different, totally different system and he blesses us according to his will and according to who he is. And it's so much greater. And let's pray about that. Father God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your incredible generosity, for your grace and your mercy and the promises that you give us abundantly. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to search our hearts and root out any 
senses of entitlement and would you stir up a gratefulness for the things that you are doing for us and the, the blessings that you are giving others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.